This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Uh, this is the New Books Network, and I'm Khalid, uh, a master's student at the University of Oxford. And today we'll be talking to Dr. Yasser Qureshi uh, from the University of Oxford as well uh, about his uh, 2022 book, Seeking Supremacy, which was published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, be- before we uh, jump into the conversation, I'll just give a brief brief. Uh, background to Dr. Yasser Qureshi. He's a, he's a departmental uh, lecturer in South Asian Studies at uh, Oxford School of Global and Area Studies at the University of Oxford. Uh, he works at the intersection of political science and public law, and his research looks at the politics of unelected state institutions outside democratic contexts. And in particular, he studies the military and the judiciary and their impact on constitutional configurations and democratic outcomes in authoritarian and post-authoritarian states. Uh, Yasser, first of all, a uh, uh, warm welcome to you on this podcast Thank you so much for having me, Khaled. I really appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yes. So uh, would you like to tell our listeners uh, something about yourself? Uh, what are, what your research interests are and how did you come to write this book? Sure, absolutely. So um, I am, uh, so, you know, I this book, as, as we will discuss further, is on sort of the history and politics of Pakistan's judiciary in Pakistan. Uh, and... Uh, Fortunately, I'm from Pakistan, so that makes, you know, that kind of partly explains the motivation, but also the ability to write such a book. Uh, And I'm originally from Karachi in Pakistan, but uh, I went to the United States for my uh, further education for college and for my PhD. And I have sort of a background, I'm sort of interdisciplinary in that way between law and politics. So I have a JD in law, and then I have a PhD in political science. And I've kind of tried to straddle the sort of boundary between both of these areas though i think sometimes i fall more in the political science side but in many ways this book is exactly a reflection of my those interests of mine right so uh i i think you were asking about what was my motivation to write this book uh well i think the thing about the book is that it's motivated by a very specific question which is why did pakistan's high courts and supreme court after decades of collaboration with and relative deference to the powerful military in Pakistan, you know, if that's one thing we all know about Pakistan, it's the power and dominance of its military. Why did these courts start asserting and expanding their authority and confronting and challenging both military and civilian leaders in Pakistan? So to understand why I was interested in this question, I think it's, uh, you know, it goes back to my own college days, right? So when I was in 
uh, college in 2007. I think the perhaps most significant event of my political memory at the time were the tumultuous events of 2007 in Pakistan. That year, about eight years into the uh, military regime of General Musharraf, Pakistan's popular chief justice was suspended and lawyers around the country mobilized on the streets, shutting down traffic, courts, cities, and really dominating the news cycle as they demanded the restoration of the highly public-facing chief justice. And this confrontation between Musharraf's regime and this increasingly popular and confrontational Supreme Court grew so dramatic that by November that year of 2007, the regime declared a state of emergency, but that also backfired as that declaration galvanized a movement of political and civil society calling for democracy to resume. And eventually this whole movement centered around a chief justice and a court that was confronting military power helped bring down the regime of General Musharraf. So I think for me as a, I don't know, young like undergrad, I think that event was so burnt in my memory as I was, okay, here's what courts can be. Here's what judges and lawyers can be, right? And so you're so used to thinking about judges and lawyers as very formalistic, robed individuals within courthouses, within sort of their own version of an ivory tower, I guess, right? And then you see this example of, of them acting so overtly political, directly engaged in mobilization, and so politi- clearly politically ambitious. And I think that is the story that those who you know know Pakistan and those who know South Asia as well and other parts of the Global South are familiar with judges being far more far less removed from the politics of the country, politics of the state, politics of the moment at different points, right? Uh, and so for me, that became the story that I wanted to understand. How do we understand judges and courts as political actors, right? Because that's what I was seeing first and foremost in Pakistan. Um, because what's... Imp- yes, go on, Khalid, yes. So, uh, yeah, you brought up uh, the uh, confrontational court and you talk about in the book about the different kinds of courts that you think uh, the judiciary in Pakistan, uh, the kind of character they took, and you talk about controlled courts and confrontational courts, and you talk about the institutional linkages between different state actors, which kind of enables that. So if you would like to tell our listeners uh, some of the theoretical underpinnings of this, since you're drawing from so many different fields, disciplines, uh, yeah. Thanks. Absolutely. So, so I, I think that, so, you know, when I was doing my research, uh, I think that the thing that, so when I, so let, let's say when I initially started my research on this project, right, understanding how the Pakistani courts move from being far, this history of deference uh, in the, to the military to this period, more recent period of confrontation with military and civilian institutions, I wanted to understand how do we think about institutional change in the judiciary, right? And what I realized in some of my conversations was that, and sort of findings was that to understand the shift in judicial assertiveness, like how the judiciary moved from being less assertive to more assertive, we really need to look at the change in the audiences with which judges interact. And I think that, so in the literature on judicial politics, there's a long, fascinating history. A lot of it looks at the way judges strategize vis-a-vis other political actors, the way judges sort of interpret the law. So you have your sort of, uh, and and the way judges, you know, so, so you have your sort of legal school, which is here's how judges think about and interpret the law. The other is thinking about here's how judges think about other political actors and strategize accordingly. What I think I got interested in was this idea that judges work out what they want to do in the courtroom, what their role is, what their preferences are 
in response to the institutions and networks or audiences with which judges interact. So it's really the idea was to think about what judges do, how they think about what they do and why they do what they do. We need to really embed them in the socio-political, socio-economic networks in which they work, interact, live. And with and the people in those networks, in many ways, with which judges seek to build their reputations. So what I argue is there are basically two types of preferences that judges typically have. Policy preferences, which refer to judges' preferences on questions of state action and policymaking, and legal preferences, which orient a judge's approach to sources of law and legal procedure and condition their understanding of the role and reach of the judiciary. And I argue that these preferences that come to develop within judicial institutions are a product of the interactions of the audiences with which judges interact, uh, 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 judges' audiences. So what do I mean by an audience? An audience, of the, for, for my purposes, and I build this from the con- work of Lawrence Baum, a famous American political scientist and, polit- and kind of, uh, uh, who works on, on the cusp of political science and political psychology, is that audiences could be political institutions, civil and political organizations, or social and professional groupings that are attentive to the decisions that judges make and among which judges have reasons to build their reputations. And that's really what I thought was really important to get into in my theoretical framework, which is judges' focus and attentiveness to reputation building. Because for judges, reputation building has both material and non-material purposes. Materially, judges seek to advance their careers by gaining uh, promotions and increasing benefits, you know, so... You need to build your reputation with those who are in charge of your jobs, your career path, your career advancement, your monetary gains, etc. Right. So you seek to build your reputation with those audiences who are so safe for judges in a position to control the process of appointments, promotions, budgetary allocations, etc. But non-materially, judges also seek to build their reputations. Judges do care about being seen as able, whatever that means. That's a subjective term. But it is a, uh, you know, but they want to be seen as able to gain the esteem of those social and professional networks they are closely tied to, as their own esteem and satisfaction in their job is tied to gaining such respect. So they would seek to build their reputations with the groups and networks within which they have been socialized, which they work in, identify with, or interact with regularly. And so the judicial intera- interest in reputation building, I think, creates the opportunity for different institutions and actors outside the judiciary to shape judicial preferences held within the judiciary. And this is where I developed the idea that you mentioned of institutional interlinkages. So institutional interlinkages are links to the internal rules and processes of the judiciary that connect institutions and actors outside the judiciary to the internal structure and culture of the judiciary within, making them critical audiences for judges. And in my book, I sort of lay out uh, two types of interlinkages. The first are utilitarian interlinkages. So here the idea is, as I said, like judges, you know, uh, judges care about, you know, their reputations with those who manage their appointments, transfers, disciplining, really the material costs and benefits of the job, right? So if there is an institution, like say the military or another elite that have a role in the appointments, promotions, transfers, and disciplining of judges, I would say that that institution then has a utilitarian interlinkage with the judiciary because, you know, this allows the military, if if it's the military I'm talking about or another institution, it allows that institution to appoint, promote, and materially benefit a judge 
who builds a reputation for making decisions in line with their preferences. So say the military has a role in the appointments and promotions of judges, then that means that uh, those judges who get promoted or move forward or move upwards or advance in their careers with, are those who will have built a reputation with the military for uh, uh, right, a positive reputation, i.e. one that they, they make decisions in line with the preferences of the military, right? So that's the way the utilitarian interlinkages work. The normative interlinkages I talk about is the second kind. Now, these are the social and professional networks from which judges are recruited and with which judges seek to build their esteem and, and their rep, right, as, uh, uh, build their esteem. And I argue that they have normative interlinkages. So the argument here is that the superior judiciary of any state is typically recruited from one or a combination of sections of the legal community. This could be, say, from a judicial bureaucracy or from the legal, uh, from the lawyers of the bar, from private lawyers, from government lawyers. All of these are different aspects, sections of the legal community of a country, right? And, uh, and we must pay attention to the social characteristics and preferences held within the community, the section of the legal community from which judges are primarily recruited. So if, say, judges are recruited from sections of the legal community that are tied to the military or benefit from the military supremacy, then I would say that the military has normative interlinkages with the judiciary because that means then that the the lawyer, the legal community or the people, the practitioners, the professionals, the networks with which judges seek to build their reputation and build their esteem are networks who are supportive of and uphold the norms of military supremacy. So hence, there's also this, the reputation building incentive here is to, for the judge, is to uphold military supremacy because this network from which they are recruited has ties to the military and benefits from military supremacy. So that's the net, so in a nutshell, what this means is that the networks judges are recruited from and the authorities that judges are recruited and promoted by both seek to ensure that their preferences are reproduced on the bench. And, in, and, that's, and these are the critical audiences for the judiciary. So in that context, judges who easily either sincerely share their audience's preferences or judges who strategically endorse their audience's preferences will advance in their careers and build esteem. And as this process repeats over time, as more and more judges upholding similar preferences move at upwards in the judiciary, take places within the judiciary, these norms, these preferences, moving from, percolating from the judiciary's audiences through the promotion and reputational building incentives of individual judges, start then becoming entrenched within the judiciary as more and more judges uphold or adhere to these preferences, to these positions, these become institutionalized and normalized within the judicial system and form the institutional preferences of the judiciary. So that's basically in a nutshell the argument. So if we want to understand uh, essentially uh, the way in which judicial assertive, uh, you know, judicial power is, uh, preferences are developed, we have to pay attention to these audiences. And so built on that, I then, as to when, sorry, I went, as you had said earlier, I, I develop a typology, right? So my argument here is, let's take this audience uh, structure and focus it on the context of judiciaries and militaries in authoritarian and post-authoritarian states. And what kinds of relationships do we see between these two institutions? And I use this concept of interlinkages to develop a typology, right? So the typology is that where you have the judiciary, uh, 
where the military enjoys both normative and utilitarian interlinkages with the judiciary, i.e. the military is in a position to manage, uh, to sort of influence the appointment, promotion, and uh, financial aspects of the, of, you know, the career aspects of the job of a judge. Uh, that's the utilitarian interlinkage and where the military is also closely tied to the networks from which judges are recruited and with which judges interact. That would be the normative interlinkage where both types of interlinkages exist. I would say that the military is going to be unusually, you know, will be a very important audience for the judiciary. And it means that judges will be incentivized both for career building and for esteem building to uphold and uh, uphold the interests of the military and defer to the, uphold the power of the military and defer to the interests of the military. And that's what I call a loyal court, right? So when you have both types of interlinkages existing, that's when you will get the maximum loyalty from the judiciary. On the other hand, I talk about what I call then the uh, collaborate uh, when when you just have uh, normative interlinkages. I'll say that the judici- the, the judiciary has re- normative incentives to uphold military power, and I call that the collaborative court, where there's a certain willingness of judges to uphold military power because it's sort of uh, you know the networks within the socialized in work in interact with truly benefit from and believe in the importance of military power, right? So that's the collaborative court. When I talk about the control court, this is the place where the the, mili- the judiciary may not come from sections of the legal community that are tied to the military, but they certainly are in a position where the military really controls the career parts of judges. And that I call the control court, where judges may or may not sincerely agree with military power and military dominance, but their career path is so dependent on military approval and military consent and military sort of uh, uh, power that therefore, in any way, they will defer to the military wherever needed and essentially will be controlled by the military. And finally, I talk about the confrontational court. This is where neither the military doesn't have normative or utilitarian interlinkages with the judiciary, and thus they develop a uh, thus their ability to shape the preferences of the judiciary are minimal, and their ability to ensure the military judiciary is deferential to military preferences is constrained. And in that context, I argue, we are more likely to see uh, greater assertiveness from the judiciary, less deference, and more clashes between the military and judiciary than we would see in the other formations and types, right? And so what I believe and my argument is about what happens in Pakistan is in explaining the shift in judicial assertiveness from collaborating with to confronting military power, I argue that there was a change in audiences in Pakistan, right? So in Pakistan's earlier history, you had audiences that were, um, that the military, the judiciary's primary audiences were either the military or elites closely tied to the military. And thus we had a period of a loyal court and then over time, this changes and you get a change in audiences as the military's role as a critical audience is diminished, leading to the emergence of a more confrontational court that was more willing to contest the military when their interests and ambitions clashed. So that's a very long-winded so, explanation. Yeah. But- no, I'm glad, you, I'm glad you gave us that background because that will help us uh, understand uh, how... Uh, in the aftermath of the creation of the Pakistani state in 1947, uh, the judiciary has a pro-military stance precisely because 
uh, it has institutional linkages to the military in the way that judges are recruited and uh, in the circles in which judges uh, socialize and are from and so on. So if you'd like to tell us a bit about uh, uh, the um, colonial inheritance of the institution of judiciary and what did and did that have a bearing on how judiciary turned out in the initial years of the formation of Pakistan? And what was the judiciary trying to do in this uh, with, uh, you know, its uh, judgments in which it propounds the doctrine of necessity, which I think uh, becomes a very important doctrine, which recurs in, throughout the book in different contexts. So if you'd like to talk talk about that, yeah. Absolutely. No, I, I'm, 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 I really appreciate also the close reading you've done of the book. So that's also, and I hope you enjoyed reading it. So um, it's, uh, it's uh, so I think to talk about the, so talk about the 1950s and 60s in Pakistan is always interesting, right? This is this new young state. Uh, and, and you're absolutely right. The colonial legacy is certainly very important to that earlier period of, the, of history, because I think, you know, one way to think about, so there are two ways one can look at it. First are the legal frameworks that the Pakistani state inherits, right? So the Pakistani state is building itself on the pre-existing colonial legal frameworks, legal structures, organization of the court system that develops in the colonial era, right? So this is a system of high courts, uh, (laughs) the bifurcation between high courts in different provinces and then lower courts across the different districts of the country, right? So you have this high court system that's that's emerged from the colonial era, this common law system of high courts. And then you have uh, a legal framework like the Government of India Act 1935, the Civil Procedure Code, the Criminal Procedure Code, all inherited from the colonial era and part and parcel of the legal training and legal thinking of the judges of the time. What's also though important is thinking about who are the judges themselves, right, in this period. Where are they coming from? How are judges getting appointed? And in the early period, most, and so this is what I, I, I kind of really tried to research in my book, was who were these judges? What was their backgrounds? And I think that there are two things that really stand out. First is the majority of judges who are coming in the 50s and 60s in Pakistan tend to either be, uh, you know, part of Pakistan's legal, elite, South Asia's colonial legal elite, like, you know, elite lawyers from you know, barristers, practicing barristers. And these are usually lawyers from the topper, upper echelons of society who have also spent years training or taking the bar, educating in the United Kingdom, right? So they have a history of connections to the United Kingdom. They've benefited, built their careers in the colonial era. And that's a really imbibed sort of disposition within the colonial elite structure, the structure of the local, of the elite within the colonial state. The second are the, is the civil service, right? So a large number of judges uh, in Pakistan, particularly in the 50s and 60s, would usually be bureaucrats from the civil service, from, the from you know, ex-ICS officers, right? So first is the ICS, then we have in the Pakistan civil service. And, uh, and they've usually spent years uh, training again in the United Kingdom, training as bureaucrats of the colonial uh, uh, structure. So again, their training, their socialization are within networks that, and within structures that were very focused on the idea of how to consolidate the power of the state, the colonial state at the time, how to manage the populations in the colonial in this in the in the post, in the colonial state, and how to how to administer this state, right? And these are people who are serving in the civil service, right? So the civil service is producing both your uh, your sort of your bureaucrats and your judges, right? 
So this idea of a meaningful separation of powers is, you know, only very formally present, but informally, it's not, right? You A judge could be serving as a magistrate, as, as, a, as a bureaucrat at one point in their life, as a judge at another point in their life, etc. There's a revolving door between the executive and the judiciary. So the idea of separating power is 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 limited, and instead there's this. So so you know, like in the book, I look at these some of the famous figures in the Pakistani court at the time, right? You have Justice Munir, Justice Cornelius. These were Pakistan's first two leading chief justices, and so Munir was a lawyer, but definitely part of the legal elite of his time, right? Certainly well trained in the colonial law and and at the time, and and Cornelius was a bureaucrat, right? So he was a member of the bureaucracy, served in the ICS, then uh, in the Pakistan Civil Service, etc., before becoming a judge. And in both of these cases, you see that there is a, although they're very different judges, right? They have different approaches on important questions, but there still is a relative uh, acceptance of the idea of executive dominance, right? The executive po- executive power is to be enabled, is to be uh, facilitated. And not uh, and 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 so and maybe to be directed or sort of uh, you know implemented in more sort of uh, how would I put it in less arbitrary manners. But certainly the, there is no idea that the, the the executive should be meaningfully constrained. Executive discretion should be limited because the idea that was picked up from the colonial era that really traveled in the post-colonial state with that executive power is crucial to the the development of the state, the consolidation of state power, and the management of populations, right? And I think you really see this mindset in our judges in Pakistan in the early period, that we have to facilitate rather than constrain executive power, right? And we and seeing ourselves as separate from uh, and acting on executive power, I think this is something that was less well internalized and accepted at the time than it was in later generations in, in Pakistan. And you also had this, you know, these coming from these elite circles that were often close to the military elite. So you have your military elite, your bureauc- bureaucratic elite and legal elite, all coming from similar networks, professionals, social, etc. in Pakistan in the early period. And I think a lot of these networks held a lot of disdain for your mass politics, right? Your politics of mass political parties. Uh, so even if they may have been, you know, well-trained in the law, well, you know, uh, and well-meaning in these other ways, there was always a sense that mass politics is something to be viewed with, kept at a distance, as something that the executive needs to, and the state needs to contain, rather than needing to accept and work with, right? So this, and this I think was sort of a more broader, unanimous consensus across Pakistan's elite circles. So whether it's the judges in the courts, the bureaucrats in the civil service, the generals in the military, this elite cadre of administrative officers and legal officers all were united around this consensus of containing and constraining mass politics. And whether it's Munir we talk about or Cornelius, that instinct and impulse remains the same. And I think that leads to a spirit of collaboration between the two, the military and the judiciary. But even building on, and I think that's where when you talked about, you asked this question about uh, the doctrine of necessity, right? So the doctrine of necessity was, I think, one of these, I think it's really in, uh, how would I put it, uh, it's probably the most notorious doctrine in Pakistan. And it's like sort of this, every time you want to uh, call out uh, somebody for being, uh, you know, for someone for being unprincipled, 
you'd say, okay, they are upholding the doctrine of necessity. It become like synonymous with unprincipled political behavior and action in Pakistan, right? And uh, <coughs> and so uh, if you and what it was was basically that in the nineteen fifties, uh, when the Pakistani, you know, first the the bureaucracy and then the military decided to step in uh, to over, you know, so. In, in the early period of Pakistan, the legis- the constituent assembly formulating the constitution was one place where you had some semblance of political representation of different constituencies in the development of the constitutional framework, right? And in the legislative body, you had some semblance of that. Um, where the bureaucracy first chose to dissolve that constituency, where the, the governor general of the time, who was a bureaucrat, chose to dissolve that constituent assembly, uh, this dissolution of the constituency assembly was upheld using the doctrine of necessity, right? So the power of the governor general, what was read into, two things were read into that moment. One was that there are more constraints on the legislature than there are on the governor general, the executive, right? And two, that even where the, the, the executive acts outside or beyond their legal constraints, Sometimes that is justifiable if it is necessary. If there is some kind of problem or intransigence or irreconcilable differences between the branches of government, the 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 military, the, the executive the, uh, is in the position, whether that's the bureaucratic executive or later the military executive, is in a position to overhaul the system, to dissolve the assemblies, to take action that is not legally sanctioned if it is seemed as politically necessary. And this becomes then the doctrine of necessity that emerges. It emerges through the courts. It developed in the jurisprudence of Justice Munir at the time, who was very close to Malikullah Muhammad, the bureaucrat who bureaucrat governor general who overthrew the uh, who uh, who dissolved the constituency assembly, constituent assembly, right? Um, he was very close to him and he came up with this doctrine to legitimize his actions. And this doctrine then was carried through to support a whole range of other extra-constitutional, extra-legal interventions by executive officers, whether bureaucratic or military, in the service of what the these actors collectively thought was politically necessary. And what was politically necessary was finding some way to contain and constrain mass politics and representative politics, which I think everybody at the time sort of uh, not everybody started, these elites all sort of had a consensus around thinking as problematic and uh, threatening threatening the interests of the state. And so I think that really showcases the kind of collaborative spirit and lo- between the military and the judiciary elite that we see at the time, right? Uh, building a doctrine that essentially gives a blank slate or a blank, a blank check, rather, to the military, the bureaucratic leadership, and then under Yub Khan, the military leadership, to carry out whatever actions it deems necessary against the representative, political, organized politics of and popular politics of the state. Yeah, and uh, and in the it's in the nineteen seventies that the character of the judiciary, at least the Supreme Court and the high courts, begin to change because these judges are more and more recruited, not from the elite class, which has interlinkages with the military, but from uh, middle class, locally trained lawyers. And that has profound implications for the character of the court 
in the way that it slowly starts contesting the military. So if you'd like to talk about how that process unfolded in the 1970s and 80s. Sure. Thanks, Khalid. And to be honest, this is my favorite part of my research, right? So when I got into my research, I was a lot more started a lot more focusing on the you know the judges the uh the court cases and things like that which is obviously all very interesting so i think what happened then uh, what i think i got really interested in then though was when i started looking a little more into this period from the 70s and 80s was that the really interesting action that was taking place was actually in the in the bar associations among the lawyers right and i really wanted to understand this more so what I argue is basically that there are three changes that happen in the Pakistani courts in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, right? The first is what I call an, uh, a demographic shift. So after the 1960s, it's decided that judges will not come from the, the civil service anymore, but, about approximate, but the majority of judges will now come from the legal community, from among the lawyers, right? Now, what's also changing at this point is that the lawyers who are emerging, uh, who are becoming judges, are increasingly coming from less affluent backgrounds, right? So less elite backgrounds, right? So what I noticed, for example, is is that um, your le- your legal your elite families, your legal elite, etc., is increasingly gravitating towards commercial law, private law, where the money is, right? So what's happening in the sixties and seventies as the money is flowing and growing, commercial law and private law, if yours, you know you know, your son is a lawyer, or your daughter is a lawyer, and you, mostly sons, this is a very uh, patriarchal uh, society at the time, you're thinking, okay, I'll send them uh, to study abroad in the United Kingdom or the United States, become a barrister, spend all that money on that, an increasingly in, in expensive investment and proposition. And when they come back, you're thinking, okay, the best return on that is going to be becoming a, 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 you know, becoming a practicing lawyer, a corporate lawyer, a commercial lawyer. Because the difference in compensation between being a judge and being a commercial lawyer, that gap starts growing and continues to grow in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So more and more of your legal elite sees commercial law as a more profitable investment, and they are increasingly gravitating there, right? So the same families that were earlier populating maybe the civil courts, the high courts, are now sending their children into corporate law, private law, etc., right? What this means then is that now the lawyers who are becoming judges are increasingly coming from the middle class, right? So these are people in the middle class for whom, who, you know, the, the, the judgeship offers an opportunity at mobility, socioeconomic mobility of status, right? So for them, this is an opportunity to take a step upwards. So more and more, you're seeing the, the old elite, established elite gravitating towards private and commercial law uh, and uh the middle class gravitating towards, and, and those empty spots now being populated by lawyers coming from the middle class. And these are usually lawyers who have spent their time, so who are these lawyers, right? These are lawyers who have spent their time primarily working within uh, the legal profession, within the bar, typically who becomes, let's think about who becomes a judge, right? So your high court judge is usually someone who's been a lawyer and they become a judge at the age of 45, right? So this means that you have been a lawyer probably from the age of 21, when you finish your college education, to the age of 45. That's about 20, what's that, like 20, 25, 26 years you have spent as a practicing lawyer before you become a judge. And a practicing lawyer in the bar, in the in the world of the legal profession, in the culture of the legal profession. These are your important formative years, where you develop your legal ideas, your identity, your training, etc., your networks, Right? 
And what I found was interesting was happening was that if we want to understand the judges and how they are thinking about their role, their position and their actions, we need to think about the networks that they have been working with, socializing with, developing within the 20 years prior. And what are the ideas, beliefs, positions being taken within that community of middle class, urban middle class lawyers of the time? And so I started looking increasingly at what's happening in the bar at the time. And what we see happening in the 1970s in Pakistan is, is that the bar is becoming increasingly politically engaged with the politics of the time. First, you know, with the movement against Ayub Khan in the late 1960s, then more in sort of the po- challenges to uh, Bhutto and the PPP in the late 70s. But for me, the real critical juncture is about is the regime of General Ziaul Haq. Right. So General Ziaul Haq becomes Pakistan's military ruler in um, 1977. And the first thing he does in 77 is he uh, removes the uh, he bans all political activity in the country, all political parties, all political action, etc. Right. And then the first place he allows some resumption of electoral political activity is in the professional associations of the state, such as the bar. Right. So there's medical associations, bar associations, etc. What this means is that these bar associations, which were uh, suddenly become one of the only venues in the country in which politics can be, political activity can be carried out, a ve- a, one of the few venues for politics. And the result is bars, you know, politically minded lawyers, politically active lawyers start seeing the bar as the one place where they can actually carry out politics and push political agendas. Uh, in a way that they couldn't in any other places. So they start, you know, so you see this increasing attraction to the bar and bar politics of people who are, have more interest in the politics of the state, political action in the state, etc. Bar association elections that pre-1977 were usually, you know, a, a clear example of this is when you look at, when I was doing my news, archival research in newspapers, articles about bar association elections in 1977, 76, would be made in the newspaper, maybe a paragraph long. By 1979, you have page-long profiles of the people participating in bar association elections in the Lahore High Court bar, etc. And the reason simply is that there was no other political activity happening in the country. So this is what they had to report on. But this made bar politics much more visible, much more appealing to politically ambitious, politically active lawyers. And so bar association elections became places where politically active lawyers got engaged and they used the bar and victories in bar association elections to then use the bar to champion political platforms. Platforms usually challenging military rule, challenging Ziaul Haq's repression, challenging the actions of the military regime of the 1970s and 80s. And so the bar moves to play, take this increasingly politically active role and mobilized role in Pakistan's politics and Pakistan's political system. And this role really gets entrenched in Ziaul Haq's era and period. And, and, but once Ziaul Haq leaves power in 1988 and you have the resumption of civilian democracy, it's not like the bar recedes from politics. Instead, these lawyers now, this very position they've taken, right, these lawyers start seeing themselves as, uh, you know, just as they are very critical of, say, the repression of the military regime, they're also very disdainful of the patronage politics of the new political parties that have taken uh, taken uh, power in the 19, late 80s and 90s, the Pakistan People's Party, the Muslim League. You have this, this in the lawyers' community, this sort of urban middle-class disdain for what they see as the corruption of patronage politics, of the, 
you know, the new political class, right? A lot of this political class are usually landowners, feudals, etc. And this urban middle class sees them as problematic actors, corrupt actors, a corrupt elite, right? So, uh, you know, they, so, so that instinct, that instinct both for challenging uh, military repression is now complemented by this idea that the civilians who've come to power, the civilians who've taken power are also corrupt, venal, incompetent, and they need to also be challenged. And so the bar decides, so the ambition of the bar now changes and it starts speaking out on all manners of issues. Bar association resolution in this period are fascinating. You have the bar association talk, resolve, issuing resolution, all matters of you know, economic policy, social policy, international affairs, etc. They feel like they have to say something on all these affairs. And what they really want now is the institution that they are tied to, these lawyers, that is the judiciary, to, to see itself, to, to engage more in politics, to engage more in policymaking. This becomes increasingly apparent from the statements of lawyers, statements of bar association leaders, etc. in the 90s, that we want a more assertive, activist judiciary that is not relegating itself to being a side player, a collaborator with military or elected civilian power, but becomes the vehicle through which we can just, you know, impact policymaking, impact politics, we as the lawyers, as the lawyers community, right? So you see a real championing of judges who are confrontational, who challenge um, elected governments, who challenge prime ministers, who who are, uh, you know, that becomes the flavor of uh, the popular flavor within the bar at the time, as it were, right? And so you really see this shift therefore that's taken place. And and the third part of the change, sorry, I I mentioned, so you see the change in the attitudes, norms, interests, and preferences within the legal community. And this is the community from which the judges are being recruited, right? So judges coming out of this community are increasingly socialized in this thinking, in this culture, that we need to be more confrontational. We need to see both military and civilian leaders as, you know, problematic, uh, corrupt, repressive, etc. And so if you are a law, if you are a judge in 2010, you were probably a lawyer in the 80s and 90s in this period of, of upheaval and change in the bar. The third change that takes place is the one about judicial appointments. So judges before 1980, uh, before 1996 were usually appointed through, uh, with the final word belonged to the executive branch, right? That was a way to appoint. There was a collaboration, there is a consultation between the judges, uh, you know, the chief justices and the executive, the prime minister's office, but the final word lies with the executive branch, right? In 1996, this was changed. And the advice of the prime minister, uh, of, the, of the chief justice on whoever was to be appointed as a judge was made binding on the executive. What this meant now was that both the, the, that the career path for judges, i.e. becoming a judge, being promoted, now depended less on executive institutions like the military, but and more on judges formally and informally, those who judges spoke to, talked to, consulted with, which were usually senior lawyers who these judges had close ties with. Remember, these judges were usually lawyers before as well, and this was their network. So the result is that both normatively, the, the networks judges were coming from were increasingly from this middle-class, politically activated bar, which was less tied to military power than the elite legal community of the 50s and 60s. And then career-wise, from the utilitarian perspective, judges' careers depended less on executive institutions like the military and more on judicial, act, uh, you know, sort of judges 
and formally and the informally the lawyers and legal elite who judges worked with, consulted with, etc., in their uh, in sort of promotions, appointments, etc. So the result is you get this complete reworking of the audiences of the judiciary, and this leads to a change in the norms and preferences upheld within the judiciary, in the direction that I spoke about. As you know, so the very legal culture we see developing in the eighties and nineties start in the legal community starts percolating upwards into the judiciary in the two thousands. Yeah, and and this uh, legal culture uh, is really given lease of life when uh, in uh, the 1990s and especially in the 2000s, uh, there is the rise of judicial activism, uh, which is uh, concomitant with media reporting and all of that, which helps uh, judges to actually go out of the way in um, deciding cases on a suomoto basis of, of policy issues, of socioeconomic issues, which they think are uh, infringing on the fundamental rights of uh, Pakistani citizens. And uh, this judicial activism and the confrontation that judges are, uh, you know, uh, putting out uh, in some ways also plays a role in the downfall of General Pervez Musharraf as the president of Pakistan, which I found really fascinating. So if you could tell us a bit about that. Absolutely. I mean, that's really the sort of the high point of, Mm. I mean, it's not the high point because judicial activism stays like this kind of populist judicial action stays sort of in place for the period, even after uh, Musharraf's downfall, but it really plays a critical role there, right? So what's happening there is, is that by 2005, the Pakistani Supreme, you know, I would say, uh, uh, but, but so what's interesting is, remember I said in 1996 was when uh, the judges, uh, judicial appointments uh, come in the control of the judiciary, Right. And 2006 is the first point where the majority of judges in the High Courts and Supreme Court are appointed uh, after 1996. So for the first time, a majority of the judges at this point are those who have been appointed in the period when the judges have the final say in judicial appointments, right? So that tells you about why that period of 2006 and 7 is so important, right? Um, what happens is that Chief Justice Iftikhar Chaudhary becomes the Chief Justice at the time. And Iftikhar Chaudhary immediately realizes, uh, starts uh, carrying out uh, an agenda of sort of activist jurisprudence, starting with different issues that he deems to be in the public interest. So I'm sure you've all heard of PIL, public interest litigation. Uh, this is something that emerged you know, famously in India. The idea that, that certain procedural rules of the courts and jurisdictional constraints can be relaxed if the relaxation is for court to take up an issue in the public interest, right? Uh, Iftikhar Chaudhary, uh, as the Chief Justice, in, among many and many other judges, started reading this PIL jurisdiction in more and more flexibly to allow the court to intervene in more and more issues of governance, of politics, as he chose, a, a, as long as he could see it fit into the parameters of public interest, right? And he really starts doing this in 2006, 2007. And one of the new techniques he really holds well is what they call the suomoto power which is the judge's power to pick up an issue where there isn't even a petitioner. So typically you think of a court case, there's someone who comes before the court says, court, please take up my petition. And the court then says, yes, there's legal grounds to take up the petition. We'll take it up. So motor cases, there is no petitioner. Essentially, it's the judges who see a story, see an issue, and are like, you know what, we want to intervene. It's the maximum judicial discretion, effectively, right? 
And so, because the court, just a judge decided with no particular uh, rules or guidance, you know what, here's an issue I want to pick up. I'll pick this up and I'm going to make a case out of it and decide on it. And so what has started happening in Pakistan is judges started watching, particularly Iftikhar Chaudhary, started watching issues in the news. Here, see, here's an issue that has salience, has interest of the urban middle class, which is the primary audience for the news and also the primary audience for the judges, as I explained earlier, right? And he'll pick up these cases, Suomoto, make a case out of them, uh, uh, and, and, and then get more and more media visibility for his interventions, right? Because the media will be like, look, he's picking up the issues we care about, and we'll give him more coverage. So this kind of synergy builds up between the two. And initially, if the Chaudhary focuses on small level governance issues, but over time, he gets more and more, the courts get more and more ambitious under him, they start challenging greater and greater powers of the military regime and particularly some major by end late 2006 some of the core aspects of the power of the military regime come under challenge from the the courts you see as the courts have been picking up more and more of these issues they've been growing more and more popular both in the public at large but especially within the bar right uh, as they intervene more and more in the politics and policy making of the state championing this idea of the, the public interest as it were um and finally, when they start picking up issues like enforced disappearances by the military, uh, privatization of steel mills by the military, uh, and even the power of Musharraf to stand for elections, and that's the really sensitive one, you see pushback from the military. Uh, Musharraf goes up against the regime. Uh, uh, no, uh, Musharraf suspends Iftikhar Chaudhary from his position of chief justice. Uh, and I think Musharraf did not anticipate the reaction from the lawyers community and the public at large. I think he underestimated just how publicly visible and popular the judge uh, Iftikhar Chaudhary had become and how well-organized and mobilized lawyers had become over the preceding couple of decades. And you really see this all come together when all these lawyers start coming out in the streets day to day, every day, demand, shutting down the courts, shutting down the streets, demanding the restoration of the chief justice. And there's a synergy between the lawyers and the media who are constantly covering the lawyers doing this that really builds up this public momentum behind Iftikhar Chaudhary, behind the court, demanding the restoration of the Chief Justice. And by July, the, you know, the Supreme Court enabled and facilitated and emboldened by the support it's getting from the public and from the bar, decides to reject Musharraf's suspension of the Chief Justice, bring back Iftikhar Chaudhary as Chief Justice. And when they do that, now the court is more bo bolder and more popular, and more confrontational than ever. And they start picking up issue after issue after issue against Musharraf. And Musharraf feels increasingly threatened, his power increasingly fragmented and vulnerable. And he declares a state of emergency in November 2007. Um, but of course, when you declare a state of emergency at the lower ebb of your power, uh, it's a lot harder for you to hold on to, uh, you know, come on, hold on to power. And that very public momentum that supported Iftikhar Chaudhary in March, continues with all the political parties, etc., all challenging Musharraf now. And Musharraf has to cave in, organize elections, him and his party lose elections, and eventually he's forced out to, of power, while Iftikhar Chaudhary is restored as Chief Justice. So you really see this confrontation play out in a way that the, the court comes out on top in a way one would never have imagined before in Pakistan's history. But in many ways, I as I try to tell in the book, it's a product of this longer institutional history that makes this moment possible. But what also that means is that if we thought this moment was an aberration, it wasn't. Because that very instinct of Iftikhar Chaudhary and other judges to challenge military power 
now becomes their reason d'etat to then challenge polit- all political power, political parties, prime ministers as well. And over the next 10 years, you see the court intervening in every all manner of issues, bureaucratic appointments, transfers, postings, policy making, the price of sugar, the price of gas, the price of education, mobile phone bills, tariffs, uh, all of it. The courts feel they have the prerogative to intervene, all justified by the idea that these politicians are corrupt and we, the judges, look, are the ones who uphold the public interest. And that this public interest idea really travels a lot further in this period. And we even see the courts disqualify and remove two elected prime ministers on charges of corruption in ways that really show just the way, how assertive and interventionist the courts have be- had become. So it starts with, you know, you have this event of challenging Musharraf, which definitely was uh, a moment of like, okay, wow, this, this assertive judiciary is doing something that facilitates democratic representation. But then you also have the courts finding themselves overseeing, regulating, and constraining elected politicians and electoral politics over the next 10 years. And that also undermines democratic representation. So it's a double-edged sword. Hmm. So, yeah, sir, uh, just very briefly, uh, towards the end of your book, you talk about comparative approaches to um, using this framework that you have outlined in the book to understand uh, authoritarianism and the role judiciary plays in other contexts, uh, Turkey, Egypt, and you also talk about India. Uh, So if you would like to talk a bit about that, particularly India, since this is the South Asian podcast, and what role do you see... um, judiciary the judiciary playing there today absolutely so so first of all the the, the two things that i i would want to say which are that um in in this kind of explanation just like when i look at cases like in india egypt and all one should always think of the explanation i have here as one part of the story right so there are always other parts of the story whether i'm looking at pakistan or egypt or, or india right that also play an important role in shaping the way the courts have emerge, challenge power, uh, change their, uh, uh, their their sort of trajectory. So when so this is so you know one should not think of this as the exhaustive explanation for a change in judicial behavior, but as one part of that story. An important one that I think we cannot tell the Pakistan story without telling, but not the only part. And that similarly travels to when I look at these other countries, right? So when we look at the change we see that happened in Egypt over time or that happened in India over time, I think that uh, one has to think of this change in audiences as one part of that story. And in the Indian case, I guess I got really interested in thinking about the way in which, just like in Pakistan, how public interest litigation and this expansive intervention, policy-making role of the court was really embraced in the 90s and 2000s. And I do think part of that story, when I look at the works of people like Anuj Bhawania or even Manoj uh, Mate, uh, what they talk about was the elite, the circles of those of the judges and the lawyers at the time, the 80s and 90s, and how those are changing. What they talk about is that high court lawyers in this period, in the 80s and 90s, are, are lawyers who are increasingly, one, disdainful of Congress politics, coalition, you know, Congress's patronage politics, and they're also, you know, want to use the courts as a venue for building good governance. And they also see that uh, the... Uh, and I think this is important. I think uh, Anuj Bhavania makes this point really well. This idea that the courts, uh, that that uh, PIL is really, a public interest litigation is really a way for lawyers to directly intervene in shaping policy, right? So uh, these are lawyers who 
see themselves as, as deserving of playing a role in the politics or policy making of the state and PIL as the vehicle through which they can do that. Right. And and these judges are coming from the same circles, interacting, working within those same circles and often occupying the same ideas about a particular kind of urban middle class good governance paradigm that becomes comes to dominate the, the ideas of the way in which the court approaches public interest litigation, issues like corruption, political corruption, or even issues like, uh, you know, urban management. Like I think Anuj Bhavani's book on courting the people is a really good read in that regard. And one I would recommend uh, where he looks at how the Delhi High Court becomes this sort of the synergy between your public interest litigation petitioners and your judges is such of the Delhi High Court is such that they come together on this project to reimagine the Delhi, the, the urban landscape of Delhi in ways of anti-encroachment drives, cleaning neighborhoods, etc. that all sort of uphold this vision of the of an urban middle class clean city, right? And so really to understand the, the direction the courts take, the focus of the public interest litigation and how it changes, it's really interesting to think about the audiences of the judges of the time. And that's kind of what I try to briefly talk about, but I think there are other books that, that do that better, but who I think my book speaks to very well, I hope. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, thank you so much, Yasser. It was lovely talking to you and we have already taken so much of your time. But uh, if you'd like to tell us uh, if there are any projects that you're currently working on or a book that you're writing, or if there's a book that you really like and would like to recommend to our listeners. That sure. Would be great. Uh, I'll, very, I'll very quickly ask, uh, answer that. And thank you so much for asking me uh, uh, to do this, I really enjoy being able to talk about my book and you know flesh out all the different details of it. And I hope you know it was clear and enjoyable. And I hope I hope it gives it, uh, people read, read the book. Although you know they, if they don't read the book or they heard everything in the podcast, that's also perfectly fine. Uh, but uh, but on 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 research I'm doing now. So one of the projects I'm working on is exactly this, which is kind of taking this idea of populist judges forward, really trying to develop a more better comparative conceptual framework for understanding what are populist judges. And in that regard, I have, you know, I'm working with scholars working on courts in India, Brazil, Italy, and Spain. And what we found is the remarkable similarities and convergences in the rhetoric and repertoire of judges who we would consider as populist judges, which is why we think there's such an important uh, cross synergy to this idea of populist courts. And that's something we're trying to explore and develop and build a comparative framework and vocabulary for understanding. Uh, the other work that I'm trying to do now is really looking at hybrid regimes and, uh, you know, in the context of uh, what, what do constitutional frameworks look like in the context of hybrid regimes. Uh, and that's a work I'm developing now and building on as well. Um, and in terms of recommending a book, I think a book that I would recommend is the book that I think I found influenced me the most when I was doing my PhD, which was uh, the book. Uh, so the book's called, I'll just, uh, uh, it's, so it's, it's called uh, Judges Beyond Politics in Democracy and Dictatorship by Lisa Hilbig. And it's a book, so the book's on the, uh, the trajectory of uh, the judiciary in, in Chile, right? And I found it really fascinating because it was such a good well-written, very accessible story about the way in which the courts in Chile remained loyal to Pinochet in spite of, you know, changes in regime and in spite of Pinochet going out of power as well. And I think what I thought was fascinating about the story is because usually we always look to explain changes. But what this book tries to explain is the lack of change in the Chilean judiciary 
both before and after Pinochet's regime. And it's also really good institutional qualitative study, well-written, um, uh, you know, makes good use of interviews, jurisprudence, and really get gives you a, a way of delving into the way judicial institutions work. And I think it has a lot that, you know, if we are writing on Pakistan or India or Sri Lanka, it gives us a way to bring together both thinking about courts as uh, lawyers and as legal experts and as political scientists and how we can speak to bring thinking about courts from both those disciplinary perspectives together uh, in terms of understanding the institutional development of a court. Something I try to do and I think I'd love to see more of when we study South Asian courts in the future as well. So, yeah. Uh, well, yes, sir, thank you. Thank you for that recommendation. And those sound like great projects and we wish you the best of luck with that. And thank you for being on the show with us today. Thank you so much, Khaled. And thank you to the New Books Network. And uh, uh, I'm really happy to be, be part of this and honored to be on the podcast series. Thank you so much.